New York City. It's the kind of town that people love, hate, love to hate, or simply put up with until they move on to a new location. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. On this morning's show, we're taking a look at two books that capture the essence of the New York of today and of a few decades back. We begin this morning in yesteryear. Sheldon Nadelman tended bar when New York City was arguably at its grittiest. He served up drinks at the long-since-demolished Terminal Bar across the street from the Port Authority bus terminal. For years, he photographed the bar's patrons. He never gave a second thought as to where those photos would end up, but today his photography is the subject of a documentary and a book that his son produced. Sheldon Nadelman is on the phone with us this morning. Sheldon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. Thank you. Now you put this book together with your son, right? Well, yeah, my son put it together, really. He put it all together. Those are all my photos. He scanned them all about 10 years ago or so. He made a movie. I don't know if you know about the movie. I watched the movie. Certainly did. Okay. And sort of we went backwards. It was usually uh, you do a book and then they make a movie. Mm -hmm. He made the movie and then he did the book. So how long did you tend bar at the terminal bar? 10 years. 10 years. From when to when? 72 to 82. So what was that area of New York City, right across from the Port Authority, like back in that day? It was a zoo. (laughs) (laughs) If you went went down 42nd Street between 8th and Broadway, you would think you were in Harlem. That's how things changed. There was a time where black people never came to Midtown, I mean uh, Times Square area. And in the 60s, late 60s and 70s, it all changed. Do you miss being behind that bar? No, not at all. Why not? <laughs> I didn't like it to begin with. It wasn't my idea of uh, a job, but it was economics, and my wife was pregnant. I had a little, I had another son, a baby, and so I, mean, I had to make a change. It was easy. I made the change. Your father-in-law owned the bar, right? Yeah, he owned it. He had it 25 years before I even got there. He was in. The, he had it in the 50s up until. 82. He loved it. You, though, not so much. There was nothing to love, you know. It's, I, I don't drink. I don't smoke. So it was like throwing me into the into the fire. But I had. A, I lived in the city all my life, so being around gay people wasn't no big deal. Now, and, essentially, this was a gay bar, though it didn't start off that way. No, it was an Irish bar. It was a neighborhood bar, basically. You know, the Port Authority, my father-in-law bought that. I don't think the Port Authority was even there at that time. And that was pre-Stonewall as well, so people weren't as out in the city at that time. I'll forget about it. In those days, uh, they would close you down if uh, anything uh, gay was going on in the bar. That's the way it was then, but things always have to... In fact, I was living in the village when Stonewall happened. <laughs> it's ironic. The whole thing is ironic because... The publisher of the book is located at 37 E7th Street. That's, you know, if you're familiar with the city, you know McSaldi's Bar? Sure. That's the same block. Oh, is that right? Right. And I, when I was a kid, I, I brought up on the Lower East Side there. They, now they call it the East Village. And I lived on 27 East 3rd Street, four blocks from the publishers. <laughs> so we didn't really, I didn't have to, what goes around comes around is true. So what was the progression of the bar? You said it started off as an Irish bar, a local bar. 
uh, alcohol, everybody, you know, disappeared. And the people from the Port Authority were not coming into the terminal bars. So little by little, it turned into a gay bar. And it turned around one day, it was a gay bar. So you were saying the alcohol actually led to the demise of the regulars oh, yeah. of that bar. Definitely. That, that that wiped out all the Irish and whoever was an old-time customer. They were all gone. Even the old bartenders were gone. They had two of the old-timers working there, and they both died from alcohol. What inspired <laughs> you, Sheldon, to take photographs of the bar patrons? Well, now that I can look back at it, and this is, I'm out of the bar over 30 years, so I started over 40 years ago. I think I was on a mission. I didn't realize it. When I came home from my honeymoon, that was in 69, I was working with a dude, a tailor, who had some cameras. They were brand new, and I, they were the right price. So I bought one, and that's how it all started. I just started taking pictures, and I wound up 10 years later with a whole collection of gay people, Irish people, Puerto Rican people, you name it. I got them all. And your bar patrons were willing participants? They didn't mind having their photos taken? Well, if you looked at the book, you could see them all posing. They all posed. There's nothing I did not, nothing sneaky. I couldn't be sneaky, number one, because it was, I was shooting available light. You know, so you had to set, you know, I was shooting at a very low speed because the bar is dark. I had a little, a little light was from this diffused light in the corner. And it met, worked. It all worked out. If you could see the book, you could see everybody looking straight into the camera. I'm looking at Jersey right now. Oh, Tell yeah, us about Jer Jersey. Oh, Jersey uh, was the uh, authority on everything, only because he had the loudest mouth. And he was there in the beginning when I first got there. But he was uh, he was bad news for the bar. So Why? The, well, he chased, well, he chased a lot of customers. He was a tough dude and uh, I don't know he he was hard to handle so we had a uh, the uh, we had a task force come in the health department and they closed us down for 10 days and that's when Jersey disappeared and he didn't come around until maybe near the end he showed up again and my father-in-law put him back to work and he was a different person at that time at the end I don't think I think Jersey died. He was sixty years old. He was a diabetic. Most of them are diabetics. Now you documented these bar patrons over a number of years. I mean, between nineteen seventy six and nineteen seventy eight and beyond. You really get to see how they changed over the oh, years. Yeah. It's, it's the alcohol does you know it doesn't make you look pretty. I can tell you that much. It just destroyed so many people. Did you ever feel like telling them, "Hey, man, you don't need another drink"? Yeah, lots of times. I mean, <laughs> there was times I, I would refuse to serve people because it was bombed, you know. And, and nobody was driving. Nobody even owned the car, you know. So that I could have served them all day long, but you don't want to deal with drunken patrons. It's tough enough to deal with them when they're sober. Who for you, Sheldon, was your most memorable patron? Memorable patron? Uh I would probably say hmm, a couple of them. One is Sandy, and uh, that's about Sandy would be the the best because he was gay. He had two kids 
who were both in the penitentiary and before we closed, he asked me if he should go back to his wife. So I told them, Sandy, the life out here is going to kill you. You better go back to your wife. And he did. That was the last I saw any of them. Once I left the bar, it was over. You said there was a couple of them. Who was the other most memorable? Uh, let's see. Besides Sandy, uh, hmm. there was Jack. was memorable. And there was Brooklyn, who was a nurse. He was, he was always there. They were, who else? The names, I knew what they drank, but the names are so hard to remember. I was going so to say, what? it's funny that you remember what they drank. Here I see Sissy, and you say Sissy drank rum and coke. Yeah, Sissy was a memorable. She was an, also an ex-convict. She did time for almost murdering somebody. Hit somebody over the head with something. She's lucky that the person didn't die. Well, you could see what happened to her. She used to sell joints on the street. And, you know, when you're out there on the street, you got a problem. And in the first picture, she was nice and fresh. And then one picture, she's got bandages over her head. And the next picture, you could see that scar on her head. And you could see how they knocked out part of her teeth. Yeah, well, it's all in the film, in the book. <laughs> Sissy had something in common with Paul because Paul also drank rum and coke. Yeah, Paul was Paul was a memorable guy too. He came in in the beginning, and uh, I had an attitude. I always had an attitude. <laughs> Bartender with an attitude, and uh, he saw my attitude, and he wanted to. He, he liked me, but I never paid much attention to him. And he dis he used to leave me five dollar tips, and he disappeared, you know. And then he showed up again, maybe six or seven years later, and we became very, very friendly and. In fact, he brought his wife down so I could take her picture, which I did, and she passed away a couple of weeks later. That was uh, that was Paul's wife, and he had two sons. Uh, he gave me a nice gift, a portrait of something, or, or a camel on the desert. That was nice. Some guy gave me two, two number fours by Robert Indiana. You ever hear Robert Indiana? No. You know the love, L-O-V-E? Mm-hmm. Well, that's Robert Indiana. Oh, okay. So this patron, Tommy, came in. He knew I was an artist. He says, I got a gift for you. And he came in a couple of weeks later, and here he is, he wrapped, you know, just wrapped in nothing. And I opened it up, and it's these two number fours, two of them, Robert Indiana. I said, you got two of them here. He said, that's where I keep them. And at that time, they were worth about $300 each. I don't know. That was in the 70s, so they got to be worth more today. In fact, they're hanging on my wall. <laughs> I probably could have bought a watch every day for the 10 years I was there. New York Magazine once called the Terminal Bar the city's toughest. Was it really that tough? It was the gayest. <laughs> the gayest, not the toughest. Yeah, that's, yeah he, that, that reporter was talking to the wrong bartender. He should have been speaking to me, but I wasn't there that day. I was uh, I was off on Mondays. Jersey was the one who made it the toughest bar. It was the gayest. <laughs> Only a handful of women in this entire book. This was not a bar for women, huh? Well, see, they made the selections of the photos um, between my son and uh, the publishers. They left out a lot of good pictures. They didn't want to... Uh, 
put the prostitutes, all the prostitutes in. They this garbage. You see the garbage can pictures? Yes. They left out a whole bunch of good ones. I got a whole selection of people eating out of the garbage cans. I'm looking at some photos in the book now of Ruth Brown. Now, I would imagine Ruth Brown has quite the story to tell, huh? I never saw Ruth Brown in men's clothes. <laughs> never. <laughs> so Ruth Brown was a drag queen, right? Oh, yeah. They had a, quite a few drag queens. In fact, they, they got pictures of the drag queens in there, but most people wouldn't know the difference. And Ruth Brown performed at the Terminal Bar, right? Yeah, one, one New Year's Eve. That was the same, I think, the year before we closed. Yeah, she performed. But I wasn't there. I, don't, I never went there at night. Just That was a daytime bartender. I don't think I could have survived that work at night. Yeah, how different was it at night compared to the daytime? Well, you had to deal with a lot of desperados, you know. And you had to deal with a lot of creeps, you know. The Port Authority is like a magnet for them, you know. They come down, they hustle quarters here and there, they go to the liquor store, they buy a bottle of Mad Dog 2020, they get wasted, and then they get all this courage and go out and mug people and whatever it is they're going to do out there. They're still out there, because I was there two weeks ago. I was interviewed by somebody from the Times, why, Sheldon, do you think it's important to recall to document the patrons of a bar like the Terminal Bar in New York City? I guess, like I said, I was on a mission, and you got to know, I guess it's all about alcohol. I wanted to show people, you keep drinking that monkey piss, you're going to have a problem, and it's not going to be good. You're going to wreck you. If you have a family, it's going to wreck your family. So, that was it. I mean, I had no other reason. And I had the camera, and I had the experience, and it, and it all worked out. It took 10 years for the film to come out, and another 12 for the book. <laughs> so it wasn't an overnight type of success. It's a long, drawn-out success. Sheldon, thank uh, you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks. Sheldon Nadelman took photographs of his patrons while tending bar during New York City's grittier days. His work is featured in Terminal Bar, a photographic record of New York's most notorious watering hole, out now from Princeton Architectural Press. Well, we're gonna drink some whiskey, get real frisky this morning. Yeah, we're gonna drink some whiskey, get real frisky this morning. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Bodarki. New York City has evolved quite a bit since Sheldon's day's tending bar, but one thing hasn't changed. People still dream of making it in the Big Apple, and some never, ever want to leave. A new book includes a collection of essays that celebrate the unconditional love that ties people to the city. It's called Never Can Say Goodbye, Writers on Their Unshakable Love for New York. The book's editor, Sari Botton, is on the phone with us this morning. Sari, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Now, this collection of essays is a follow-up to another anthology you edited called Goodbye to All That, Riders on Loving and Leaving New York. Why did you see a need for this new book? First of all, I still had more to say, and also, even though I left New York nine years ago, I still feel like a New Yorker, and I wanted to touch on that thing of um, still feeling like a New Yorker, no matter where you are in the world. What does that mean, still feeling like a New Yorker? 
Well, I think New York changes you irreversibly. It does something to you, um, and it sticks with you. And um, so many people I know who have lived in New York say the exact same thing. And, you know, once you have lived in New York and had that thing happen to you, you are sort of of New York, even if you're gone. And when you go back, you still feel like you're a part of it. I also did the book uh, because I had wanted to include men from the beginning. I had had some really good men lined up, and it didn't work out for the first book. And so I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to get Nick Flynn in there and Philip Lopate and Owen King and Stephen Elliott and all the other great men in there. And Jason Diamond, who in his and essay, Jason yeah, Jason Diamond in his essay, he talks about how New Yorkers like to kvetch, which is another <laughs> word for complain. That is true. Now, in fact, he says complaining is really what will forever keep New York City what it is. Why do you think it is that New Yorkers like to kvetch? Well, I think it's sort of like a survival tactic. Um, You know, there's so much uh, that you put up with that you have to speak up and, you know, complain. You have to... And and there are so many people that you have to be heard over (laughs) when you're complaining. So you have to really learn how to, you know, sort of master the kvetch. How long did you spend in New York City? I lived in New York City, all told, about 15 years. And you came from where originally? I grew up on Long Island. At least a few of the writers in your book who didn't grow up in New York City talk about how they fell in love with New York City as a kid, including Julie Clam, who grew up in northern Westchester. Yeah, that's a great essay. Yeah, and I guess for a lot of kids, New York City, Manhattan in particular, is like the Emerald City when you're a kid looking at it from a distance. Yeah, it's funny. There's one way it looks from all the way on the other side of the country, and there's another way it looks when you're in the suburbs. You know, it's just right there. It's just right there, and, you know, it glistens, and, you you know, you really just want to get there. So why leave the glistening city? Why did you leave? Well... My husband and I got kicked out of our apartment, and we were paying very little money, and we don't make very much money, and it just became we couldn't afford to stay. We spent a year in housing court trying to reverse that, but it didn't work out, and we didn't want to, like, just keep moving further out, you know, in the in the boroughs. We didn't want to be all the way out in Queens or all the way on, out on Staten Island, you know, after living right in Manhattan. How different do you think the sensibility is for people who live in the outer boroughs compared to living in Manhattan? I mean, we lived in downtown Manhattan, which is very much akin to certain parts of Brooklyn. It's sort of like a a downtown kind of bohemian feel. You know, we weren't like the kind of Manhattanites, you know, like in Woody Allen's Manhattan. We weren't uptown uh, Upper East Side, Manhattanites. But, you know, I think as you go further and further out, and it takes longer and longer to get in to, you know, the more popular neighborhoods, it starts to become more of a hassle. And, um, and also, it's just a, a different culture. It's more almost like suburban. The inability to afford to live in New York City, now that is something to kvetch about, huh? I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm still heartbroken over it. I, we had this amazing apartment. My husband and his brother took turns living in it for 15 years. They assumed it was rent-stabilized, and we thought we were going to live there forever. <laughs> and then we had a rude awakening. When you move out of New York City, Sari, how quick do you think the city is to forget about you? Nick Flynn writes a little bit about that in his essay. Well, that's uh, a message that I feel like I want to give to people who toy with leaving New York City. 
it, you know, you lose your place. Um, it's going to become astronomically more expensive than when you left. It's uh, going to be filled with people you don't recognize and stores and restaurants and businesses that you don't recognize. And in some ways, you know, that's good. Every time you go back, there's more to see. But it's not the same place. I mean, New York City changes from minute to minute, and it's, it's really hard to find your place back there again. Roseanne Cash is among the writers who contributed an essay for this latest anthology. In fact, she's the opening salvo. Hers is the first essay in the book. And she moved to New York City in the early 1990s. She spends a lot of time in her essay talking about how New York City is ever-changing, how establishments close, how neighborhoods change. But that's not always a bad thing, Roseanne says. It's true. I mean, you know, change can be very good. And New York City is all about change. For me, though, I feel like um, there's been an accelerated rate of change, and mostly it's gentrification, and not just gentrification, but it's a lot of, like, um, banks and drug chains and restaurant chains, really homogenous stuff, replacing, you know, um, mom-and-pop places or, you know, really great restaurants that just can't afford the rent. So on the one hand, change is good. It's nice to have new things to try out. But on the other hand, there seems to be this this type of change that's happening um, very quickly and at a, you know, a really accelerated pace. I love the question that Roseanne Cash poses to a 23-year-old who works at her record label. She asks, do people your age ever wonder about my New York? And I guess we all do have our own New Yorks, don't we? Everybody has their own New York. Everybody's New York is, is different. And that's also really interesting. It's really interesting when you meet somebody new, you become friends with someone, and you're invited into their New York. Um, or when you talk with someone who lived in the city and they had a completely different experience than you did, everybody really has their own New York because it's so big and it's so diverse and it's filled with so many different things. Adam Sternberg wrote an essay for the book titled Me Love Brooklyn, and he writes that everyone who moves to New York from another place comes at least in part because they're chasing after an idea of New York. This is not a place you move to, he says. You actually arrive with it already in your mind. And I guess that's true for a lot of people. New York pretty much exists in their head. Oh, I think that for most people who move there, it's really true. And I think that Elliot Callen talks about that a little bit, too. Um, You know, this romanticized notion of New York City um, lives in so many people's minds. It's in, you know, New York City is in movies and on television, and we hear people's stories, and so much history takes place there that you can only, you can't help but imagine it a certain way. And then you get there, and it's it's very different, very, very different. I, I wonder, I imagine there are many people who come, and really it doesn't match up to their idea of it, and I don't know how long they can stay. Did you get a lot of that in your first book? You know, interestingly, the first book isn't really just people who left New York. In fact, many of the people in that book either stayed or came back. Um, That book is really more about the idea of what it means to leave New York. Um, So really, both of these books are about ideas. It's like the idea of leaving New York and the idea of being a New Yorker after having been there. because I think they're both sort of like, you know, really uh, states of mind. I appreciate this line in Elliot Kalin's essay. He writes, I'm still not totally sure New York isn't just a movie. He says it seems more filmic than real. Why do you think that's the case for him? Hmm. Well, for him, um, one of the 
things that's most appealing about New York City is the mundane stuff you see in movies and television. It's people eating Chinese food at their desks out of the carton. You know, there's something um, about New York City that uh, there are things that you do there that you maybe don't do elsewhere because it's so busy and there's so much available. And I, I don't know, for him, you know, so much of his life is about movies and television. And also you see New York in movies and television all the time. So there's that vision that we all have. That being said, Roseanne Cash works to set the record straight about how New Yorkers are perceived by the outside world. She says New Yorkers aren't rude, but tourists who've seen a movie about rude New Yorkers think they have to act the same way when they come to New York. Do you share that view? Um, yes, that I see that a lot. Another thing that I say in my essay is that um, it's not so much that New Yorkers are rude, it's that they're efficient. And you just don't have the time to, you know, trade pleasantries all day, every day with every person you cross paths with. You know, sometimes you just have to be like, you know, you don't have time for hello. You just have to keep moving. But then when the chips are down, when horrible things happen, when people get hurt, New Yorkers will stop and and really take care of you. I was hit by a car in 2008, and people really came to my side and took care of me, and that was so remarkable. Yeah, one thing about New Yorkers is that we all pull together in times of tragedy. I mean, clearly we saw that after 9-11. We saw that after Superstorm Sandy. Absolutely. I remember seeing it uh, during the blackout of 2003, that was just amazing. Yeah, those those times are really um, dear to me. How long do you think it takes for someone to, quote, become a New Yorker, a transplant? Ed Koch, I think, said it was 10 years. Mm, I think it's different for everyone. It's funny. I live upstate now um, in the Mid-Hudson Valley, and here you can be here for 30 years and you're still not you know, you're not a local as far as people are concerned. I don't think it's a chronological thing. I think it's really a matter of um, your own personal experience and how um, quickly you get into the life here and how deeply. Whoopi Goldberg grew up in New York City. She wrote an essay for your book. She talks about how growing up in New York City taught her pretty much everything she really needed to know about life. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective, right? Yeah, I mean, she said she was in New York City, and pretty much while being in New York City, she was everywhere else at the same time, if you will. I mean, that I can see how that would be true. There's such diversity here in terms of culture and the work that people do and the foods, and yeah, um, it's all here. It's like a, an international city, and um, she grew up in the projects where there were all kinds of people, and... Um, that had a really big effect on her and who she became. You dedicated the book, Sari, to Maggie Estep. Now, I think that not everyone is familiar with Maggie Estep. So who is Maggie Estep for those unfamiliar with that name? Well, Maggie Estep was a novelist, but before she was a novelist, she was a slam poet, um, and she made records uh, where she would, well, it started off where she would just speak over music, but it became more like um, music, and um, she was a a big deal in the 90s. In the mid-90s, she was on um, MTV and HBO, Def poetry jam and um she was um a real icon for me and for a lot of people she also was in goodbye to all that she wrote an essay for that book um and she had done um a reading for me in rhinebeck on february 7th and then on february 10th she tragically died Mm. suddenly 
at 50, and it had a very big effect on me. I was um, very much affected. I'm only two years younger, and I had, I've always looked up to her, so um, that's why the book is dedicated to her. And she left New York City for upstate New York like you. How much do you relate to that particular part of her story? Oh, my God. Well, when I found out that she lived up here, I was like, okay, I'm I'm actually not uncool. I thought I was uncool because I don't live in New York City anymore, but Maggie Estep moved here two years after me, and so I must, you know, therefore, <laughs> I must still be cool. So, yeah, it, it had a big effect on me. And, um, you know, I've changed my opinion also about, like, you can be cool wherever you are. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> what song, Sari, do you think defines your feelings about New York City most? New York, I love you, but you're bringing me down by um, LCD Sound System, because it's New York City is a place full of contradictions. It will always challenge you and um, bring you down, not all the time, you know, not nonstop, but it, it will always have that effect or the potential for it. Um, you know, there's a line in it, you're still the one pool where I'd happily drown. Sari Botten, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. New York, I love you. But you're bringing me down. Sari Botten is a writer and the editor of Never Can Say Goodbye, writers on their unshakable love for New York. The book is out from Touchtone Publications. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter for show updates and New York City tidbits. We're listed on both as WFUV Cityscape. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Taylor Nolk. Have a great weekend. You're safer and you're wasting my time. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.